0: I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the third series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore secularism, the common good, the trans debate, how to talk about God, what animals teach us about ourselves, how pandemics shape history, and the nature of reality itself. The debate around gender and transitioning has, in the last five years or so, assumed enormous proportions. Like many people, I followed it, but I've often been confused and uncertain by what I've heard, and also what I think. I know that I should know more about the debate, but I also wanted to get beneath the personal stories and sometimes emotive language, and grapple with the underlying ideas. So it was that when I first came across a book the first line of which read, this is a book about an idea, I was hooked. For someone like me for whom ideas are a kind of drug, a book that explored the thinking behind the debate without ever losing sight of the human realities of the issue itself was, well, ideal. That book is called Trans and it's by the Britain editor at The Economist, Helen Joyce. The title is short, but underneath it, The slightly longer subtitle, When Ideology Meets Reality, sets out the terrain of what it covers, including the way we use language, the delineation of rights in society, the question of what constitutes a civil rights movement, the interplay between mind and body, the nature of ideology and reality, and ultimately the question of what defines our humanness. Helen, welcome to Reading Our Times.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: We should, I think, begin with a potted history. Viewers of the film The Danish Girl will be aware that the history of transitioning goes back to the early 20th century. But it's only really been in the last 10 years or so that its significance has really risen in public prominence. Rather than rehearsing the entire history, which you do admirably in your opening chapter... Can you tell us what you think has changed in the last 10 or 20 years? Why has this become such a significant issue
1: recently? So to start, what this is, is what I call in the book gender self-identification. So, you know, if you're older than about 25 or 30, it probably seems obvious to you that people come in two flavours, male and female, and that those are things that are set at conception because we're mammals and that's the way mammals are. Other animals also come in male and female, but sometimes it's a bit different the way that they become male and female. It may be environmental. But there's been this idea for a while floating around that either that male or female thing isn't very important or it isn't even real. And what actually matters is what people feel about themselves. And maybe... You know, going back a long time, we think there are probably the occasional person who feels really strongly that they were in the wrong body or that they were meant to be a member of the opposite sex. But it didn't kind of intrude on everyone else's understanding of what we are as a species. The Danish girl is a a very early example of somebody who went to a doctor and actually got some treatment for feeling that he was in the wrong body. It killed him because they didn't know about antibiotics and they didn't know about um, blood types or what to do with certain sorts of operations and I would say that, you know, that sort of idea bubbled along, but it seemed to apply only to a few people, like really exceptional people who were ex- you know, incredibly unhappy with their bodies and willing to go through really, really major medical treatment in order to feel a bit happier. And I don't think doctors really thought they were changing people's sex. It's called sex change, but they weren't changing people's sex. But it turns out that a lot of the people who were having this sort of thing done did kind of think they were changing sex. And then you hit the 1990s and the way that... American campuses in particular had picked up the ideas of 1960s French post-structuralism and post-modernism, which kind of dissolved categories of all sorts. And also then sort of going into the 2000s, the way that American politics became very identitarian. So your identity became something that you own and that's entirely in you. And you see that in the way that people talked about women, about people of different colours or ethnicities or races also how they thought about sexual orientation. So all of these things have been thought of as something maybe more external or understood as a thing you did, a thing that was about how you interacted in the world. But without anyone really noticing the consequences, those things became something about you, like an internal identity. And all of these things together made a perfect storm so that trans people, meaning those who felt that they were not of the sex that they actually are, were people who had a different identity, and then if you want to explain that identity, well, you have to explain everybody's identities. So if somebody born male can be a woman, why are they a woman? Well, because they feel like a woman. Well, then you have to say that I am a woman because I feel like a woman as well. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a woman because I was conceived female and lived past the age of 18, that's all. So what was a sort of concession for a very tiny number of people who were in a very difficult position became a theory about all of us. And that's why, in a nutshell, it's everywhere now, because it's about all of us.
0: Mm. There's a very interesting line quite early on in the book when you talk about a shift to individual rather than a communal conception of personhood. What do you mean by that particular phrase?
1: So if you think about um, traditional societies, they're very communal in the way that they think about things. They're not, they're not thinking the way that we are about individual self actualization And people are puzzled sometimes when... Modern Western people talk about, am I happy? Am I fulfilling myself? How would I choose whether to have children or not? These things are seen as very, very personal as opposed to being about part of your tribe or part of your society or a duty to your god or any of those things. So humans have always thought of themselves as part of tribes or societies or groups. And that was starting to change quite a lot. So if you think about what man and woman meant beyond just, you know, male and female and adult it also meant that you took on certain roles in your society. And I'm not saying this is good or bad, I'm just saying it is. So that role might be a bad thing. It might be that, you know, you're not allowed outside the house without covering yourself up, or it might mean that you undergo female genital mutilation, but those are things that are communal ideas of people. And actually, the evolutionary thinking is also communal because it understands you as part of a species. It doesn't put obligations on you in the same way, but it explains you in a communal way. And then this idea came along that we are ourselves, that we own ourselves, and that it's our right to define ourselves. You see these slogans like, um, I am who I say I am, which is an extraordinary thing to say, actually. I mean, I'd love to say that I was 18 and stunningly beautiful and very slim and, you know, a brilliant runner and things. And none of those things is actually true. I can't define those sorts of things about myself. And yet the slogan in activist circles is that we are who we say we are. We make ourselves ourselves. So that's, I suppose, what I mean, is that shift from understanding yourself as part of a group for whatever reason, God, evolution, something else, to defining yourself.
0: I guess a lot of people who take that attitude would say that it's fundamentally liberating. You mentioned that you weren't making a moral judgment about whether this was good or bad, but of course a lot of people would say that actually that sense of communal identity, particularly if it's foisted on you by the tribe or by your religion or whatever else, is actually quite oppressive. It doesn't allow you to flourish as an individual. And therefore, what they're doing is liberating themselves from oppressive structures.
1: So I'd say two things to that. One is it's empirical. Some communal structures are actually very supportive. Like if you have good ideas about how children transition into adulthood, then that can be something that's beautiful and that supports people in your group. You know, many rites of passage, like the way that, you know, weddings are done or something. These are communal things that turn you from somebody single into a member of a couple. And when they're done badly, they're bad. And when they're done well, they're done well. And the second thing I'd say is that it's all very well saying that it's liberating to think of yourself as an atomized individual who creates yourself. The fact is that in many ways, it's just simply not true. You know, I gave the example I can't declare myself to be 18. I'm just not 18. And also some of the things that I could say that might be less open to challenge, they're things that cause problems for other people. If I were to declare myself a medical doctor, for example, well, I'm not. So I would mistreat people. And we don't allow people to do that for very good reasons. (laughs) It depends on whether what you're saying is true Mm. and how bad or good those communal structures are.
0: There's one other point before we launch specifically into this tension of ideology and reality that governs the book that really struck me in terms of the context. You mentioned there about this things changing in the 1990s and of course that is also the decade where the internet is born and you I think you make the point quite early on in the book that in a sense it's hard to imagine this shift occurring without the internet not only because of forms of communication that made things much easier and so on and so forth because as you say at one point many people now spend more time in virtual worlds than real ones the internet is playing a significant conceptual role in all this isn't it?
1: Yeah I mean for whatever reason Humans evolved big brains and big heads, and we're an unusual animal that feels wrongly like we are something that lives behind the eyes and that's carried around in a sort of a container made of flesh and that's just not correct. we are our bodies our our whole selves are one thing our brains are part of our bodies. If you were to take the brain out like this is a staple of science fiction, of course, if you have to take the brain out or some some essence or something and put it into a different vessel it wouldn't be the same person you can see that if you think about the way that your brain works which is that it takes feedback from all of your nerves which go right through your body and also the hormones that are circulating through your body all the time and your brain is storing information in a way and it's experiencing things and it's sending signals and receiving signals but none of those would mean anything if they weren't connected to that particular neural network and living in that particular body so this is a feeling we have though and it's something that we're terribly prone to thinking so now you imagine somebody sitting in front of a screen you know choosing an avatar for a computer game and this creature can run around and it can jump and it can maybe fly and then you can change its race its sex any of the characteristics you like This feeds into our misconceptions about ourselves as little homunculi living behind the eyes. And I think that's at least as important as the fact that the internet spread these ideas that you can self-define yourself in all sorts of radical ways. But also that it could make sense to say that there is a sense in which somebody is not the sex of their body. like That there is something that could be your sex that isn't just the fact of your body.
0: Well, that leads us very neatly on to this question of embodiment, which is, of course, central to this whole debate and, if you like, is the reality part of your subtitle. Very early on, you mentioned that sexual dimorphism appeared on the earth, you say, at 1.2 billion years ago, which I find extraordinarily early, really, and that all mammals in our roughly 210, 20 million year history have been sexually dimorphic. That's at the heart of it, isn't it? The heart of your argument is that sex exists as a physical reality and as a category that long predates the human mind.
1: Exactly. And we think of our characteristics, and here in Britain we talk about protected characteristics, which is the list of nine things that are protected in the Equality Act. You can't discriminate against people on the basis of these. But then, some of these things are not like the others. You know, race is one of them. And race is hugely socially salient, and it's not got no physical substrate in the sense that there are, you know, recognisable group differences between human populations from different parts of the world. I mean, they're very superficial, but they are recognisable. So race is correlated to something real, but it's a construct. We're all aware of that. Sex goes right back to, you know, when single sex or when single um, cell organisms started to become multicell organisms. And there are two reproductive strategies One is that you produce large gametes, as they're called, the eggs, and they're immotile, they're stationary. And the other one is that you produce small ones and produce many more of them and they move. And, you know, never the twain shall meet once you start producing those two things. So there are animals that can change sex, in fact. Clownfish is a famous example that's often Mm. cited in this debate. But mammals can't. The way that sex determination works in mammals is that it's right from the beginning. It's in what you were conceived to be. And then you can't change sex after that. And if anyone has heard the word intersex, it's a very old fashioned and kind of dismissive umbrella term for about 40 conditions, which are disorders or differences of sex development. But basically they apply to male and female people. Mm. They're not a third category, as it sounds like. They're not in between male and female. Intersex people or people with DSDs are male and female. Well, I was going to ask
0: about this. This is a really important point, isn't it? Because one of the counter-arguments here is, is precisely that, that there may be two dominating categories, but there are people who do not biologically readily fit into one or the other, and that somehow erodes the absoluteness of those categories. How do you respond to
1: that? Even if it was true, it wouldn't follow. So if you think of other categories that we know are real, like, say, chair. I'm sitting on a chair right now and I'm sitting in front of a table. It's possible to sit on that table in the same way that I'm sitting on the chair, but it's not a chair. And then there are things that you might actually look at and think, I'm not sure whether I should call that a chair. Like, is a love seat a chair? Is a beanbag a chair, you know? But there are still things that are chairs. So it isn't the case that if it's hard to define something or there are edge cases that the category doesn't even exist,
0: One of the other arguments that you talk a bit about in the book, one of the counter-arguments, is that binary sex is a Western construction and it's a cultural construction. So one of my guests on a previous show, a linguist, talked about how other languages have multiple genders. Is it not the case that this is a particularly Western view of seeing the nature of human beings
1: I mean, we know of no culture that doesn't know that people come in two flavours, male and female. I mean, animals know that, without language and without words. Of course we know that. It's this slippage of the words sex and gender, I guess, that helps a lot with these confusions. So gender is often just used as a polite synonym for sex, because people don't want to say the word sex. I've got so used to saying it. (laughs) But it also sometimes means the social roles that are imposed upon people of the two different sexes. And there you do often have more than two categories. Well, not often, but sometimes. So what you often see in some traditional cultures is the roles for males and females that are acceptable are so narrow that there are people who are hard to fit into them and who really struggle. Now, when that's women, it's generally tough because women, you know, most women find traditional roles very, very hard to fit into. But when it's men in particular if it's a same-sex attracted man. That man can be very hard to fit into the conceptions of masculinity that involve going through rites of passage, becoming a a real man, taking a wife or wives, heading up a a clan or a family. And so some societies have created a third gender, as it's sometimes called, like it's an umbrella term again, varies a lot from culture to culture, where you can park same-sex attracted men and allow them to have sexual relations with straight men, in fact, with other men, without that screwing everything up about the way they think about the world. These people are not regarded as having become women. There's no culture in which people think, like until ours, uh, that male people actually become female. They know very well these aren't people who fall into the female category. Um, In Samoa, which is one of these cultures, the um, males who are in this third category are called fafafine, which means in the manner of a woman which I think sums it up. They wear flowers in their hair, they grow their hair long, they wear dresses, they're quite flamboyant. And actually, you know, when you look at pictures and videos, they don't actually look like women to me. And it's distinct. I can see why somebody might think they look like women, because it's kind of what we would call effeminate, which is a word I hate. Mm. So maybe they're nearer to the way that women act than men act, but it's really quite specific third category of people. Mm.
0: So the distinction you're making is between the underlying biological reality and then the social expression of that reality, which in a lot of cultures has been, including ours, has been unduly limited. So there was a masculine sense of what being a man is and a feminine sense of what being a woman is. And if you didn't fit into that, then tough. That's the distinction, isn't it? It's between a biological substrate and the social expression.
1: And then you have to think to yourself, what do you want to do with people who really struggle to fit into the roles? Like, do you want to cast them out or do you want to widen the roles? And it seems to me that the progressive thing to do is to widen the roles, and I think that's easiest to see when you look at same-sex attracted people. Any lesbian or gay man of my age, or indeed a fair bit younger, like I'm in my 50s, will know that they've been told they weren't, you know, you're not a real woman. What you need is a man. He'll turn you into a real woman. <laughs> Or, you know, look at those floppy-wristed puffers. You know, they're not real men. Like, this is the way it was thought of. I'd just mm. like to broaden the categories of men and women so that they include highly gender non-conforming men and women. Let me
0: add one other challenge to your point. Now, I'm personally very, very sympathetic to the idea In that we are embodied creatures. Christianity flirted for hundreds and hundreds of years with Greek philosophical ideas that we are souls and bodies and essentially dualistic. But I think, properly speaking, Christianity views us as bodies. But one of the counter-arguments there is that, I quote, who wants to be nothing more than a sex object or a walking uterus? In other words, yes, we may be bodies, but surely we're not just bodies. And viewing ourselves as bodies is actually a little bit limiting. And that's why people want to maybe discard the notion of embodiment or at least expand it.
1: How do you respond to that? I mean, if it's true that we're bodies, it's true that we're bodies. We can't make it not so by wishing it not to be so. But I would also challenge our dispute, indeed, the idea that it is uh, limiting to think of ourselves as bodies. I think there's a lovely definition of feminism that I subscribe to, which is that feminism is the radical notion that women are people. <laughs> and if you think that it is limiting to be in a female body, then you're the sexist. You're the one who's saying that it is somehow demeaning to admit that you have a uterus, I don't find it demeaning to have a uterus. I just do have a uterus. You know, you have male sex organs. I have female sex organs. That's the way it works. And both of those are completely fine. And it isn't stopping me from doing anything. I mean, it's changed my life hugely. I'm the one who carried and gave birth to our two children. Um, I'm sure it makes differences to the way that I'm looked at at work and on the street and so on. I'm physically less strong than a man would be. But, you know, the radical notion is that I'm a person too in this body. I think there's also a slippage of the word definition. People say, I don't want to be defined by my sex organs. Well, a definition is just the minimal set of criteria that distinguishes something from not something. Well, you know, to be a female human being, you just have to have female sex organs. And actually that affects everything all over your body. It's in every cell. You can tell from one cell whether somebody's male or female. It's just a minimal category. It doesn't say anything about your brain power or your interests or the way you should live or the way people should treat you or any of those things. It's just the minimal definition of what puts you in one category or the other. Hmm.
0: Let's look at the other part of your subtitle, ideology. Now, there are lots of personal stories behind people wanting to transition, and it would be foolhardy to generalise about them. And in any case, you specifically say early on in the book that this is not a book about trans people. But underlying the idea of transitioning, and indeed so much of our thinking in this area, is um, what is known today as gender identity ideology. Now you touched on that at the beginning, but can you spell out what exactly gender identity ideology is?
1: So people call it different things, I mean trans ideology maybe, but it is this central idea that sex is either non-existent or on a spectrum or at least very trivial compared with what people say they are. And what they say they are is man, woman, boy, girl, and increasingly in recent years, maybe something else, something in between, non-binary, gender fluid, a host of other gender identities. And the ideology really is that those are the things that matter. And, you know, when you think about it, an individual themselves, it's really up to them to say whether, whether that's the thing that matters about them. Like if I meet somebody and they say that they are um An Orthodox Jew, or they are an environmentalist, or a feminist, or non-binary, fine. That's their definition. But we live in a society where we have certain things that are separated by sex. Now we don't do that for bad reasons mostly anymore. We've got rid of all the women can't come into this profession and there are different pension ages, or you can't marry someone of the same sex. So we've got rid of all those unjust and unnecessary distinctions of sex, but we have kept the distinction of sex in certain situations. And those are to do with privacy, safety and dignity and fair competition when it comes to sport. So if people can define themselves and that definition must be taken by everybody to override the reality of their biological sex, then that's a statement about the way the world should be organised. It's an ideology. And it's an ideology that encompasses everybody. So if you allow male people into a female only space, it ceases to be female only. Well, female only spaces matter to female people in certain circumstances. That's when they are vulnerable, when they're naked, uh, when they're sleeping, if they are undergoing, say, an intimate medical examination, and also in sports. Those places need to be female only for a bloody good reason. And in case anyone needs rehearsing, the reasons are female people are on average a fair bit weaker than male people. People bridle when I say that. They think it's anti-feminist. It's just true. Back to reality. Mm. Male people are much stronger. Testosterone in uh, puberty makes people much, much stronger. Mm. So women are weaker. Uh, They're less violent. They commit almost no violent crime compared with men. They commit almost no sexual crime compared with men. And they're the victims of a hell of a lot of it. Uh, Men are also prone to non-contact sexual offences, which is flashing and voyeurism. So non-consensually exposing yourself or non-consensually looking at somebody else naked. So women need to keep men out of certain places. And if, if you allow people in on the basis of what they say they are, you can't keep out any male. Because how do I know if somebody's being sincere or not? Sometimes people say this isn't about trans people. Well, it's about trans people and non-trans people. I just don't want any males in female-only spaces, no matter how they identify. So this is an ideology because it says something about the way the world is meant to be organised or should be organised that's totalising. It mm-hmm. encompasses all of us.
0: Mm. Do your views on this change according to whether somebody has gone through the process of full body reconstruction and is taking hormones and so on and so forth? Are there two arguments here? One about people who, if you like, choose to identify but don't physically transition in any way, and others who choose to identify and do physically transition?
1: So this word transition has become almost meaningless. Some people use it for just undergoing quite cosmetic modifications like just chest surgery you know a man getting breast implants or a woman having her breasts removed maybe taking testosterone if you're a woman or estrogen if you're a man but i've increasingly just become uninterested really in whether somebody has or hasn't transitioned i guess full transition is when you undergo a um, remodeling of your genitals so for a man you get castrated the penis is removed and the skin is used to make a sort of a neovagina by inversion i mean that's what people mean when they say full transition that used to be the situation that people who had undergone full transition were the only ones who were treated differently. And doctors medically gatekept that process. You know, you had to convince them that you were very serious about how bad you felt and you had to undergo a whole process. And then you might get your birth certificate changed to say you were of the opposite sex. You know, it was such a tiny number of people that it wasn't massively relevant. I still think it was a bad principle, though, because people can't change sex. But I understand why, in a more rigid world than we have today... If you really just looked a lot more like a woman, you know, it's actually very difficult to live in a rigid society if you look like you're a member of the opposite sex. So I see why they did it. And I would say one final thing, which is that if a person has gone through male puberty, it's extremely difficult for them ever to pass as female. Because testosterone does so much to your body and it does things that distinguish you from women. Really reshapes your face. It gives you a broader jaw, deeper eye sockets your hands and feet are bigger, your your shoulders are broader, your hips are narrower, loads of things like that that you just can't change. So most trans women don't pass as female. Some do, but most don't. So if you are allowing some male people into female-only spaces, it's very hard to see how you could gatekeep and keep out the other male people. It was basically just done by social convention. And when we've lost that social convention, unfortunately, under the effect of this ideology. So no, I think we've got to go back to saying that female spaces are for female people and male spaces are for male people. And then we have to look at third categories, third spaces for people who are not comfortable in either of those.
0: Well, that's a very important point, isn't it? Because one of the pushbacks would be, what about people who have physically transitioned? You don't want them to feel more ostracised or alienated than perhaps they already do. So how does society treat those people?
1: I think you need to step away, as any good negotiator would tell you, from positions and look at interests. So that's the first principle of negotiation of any sort, whether, you know, you're talking to hostage takers or whether you're trying to broker a peace deal or just if you're trying to decide with your spouse where you're going to buy a house or whatever. Positions are what you think should happen. So a position might be, you know, everyone should just use the bathrooms that are for their sex. End of story. That's a position. Interests are thinking, what do people need? to be happy, to flourish, to be safe. Well, female people need certain things. Male people need certain things. People who are trans-identified need certain things. People who have undergone body modifications need certain things. Sometimes those are the same things, like we all need safety, dignity, privacy. But sometimes it's things like um, better medical care or to be able to move in the world fully and freely. So, you know, an orthodox Jewish woman needs slightly different things from me. I don't want male people in my spaces but it doesn't automatically mean I can't go into them. For an orthodox Jewish woman, it may mean she has to stay home. And that's very, very, very important to remember that there are lots of women who can not use spaces if there are any male people in them. They may have been traumatised by rape or male sexual violence. They may have religious reasons. They may be just unusually modest people. So they have interests and needs too. And we need to step back and think, what are everybody's interests here? What do people need? And then look at what we need to do to satisfy those interests in a fair and just and equitable manner. So I don't think it's a question of me just saying, well, what we need is third spaces. I think that will definitely be a part of the answer. I think we need to think, like, what is just for people? What is right for people to be able to take part in society fairly and safely and comfortably? Mm.
0: I want to just talk briefly a bit about language. It's a topic that fascinates me anyway, but it's incredibly important in this debate. I am very conscious of the language that we use, partly because people are often using the same words to mean slightly different things, which can become quite confusing sometimes. And partly, of course, because people can get very, very cross about perceived linguistic slights. You use the word Orwellian at one point, and you acknowledge it's a word that's sometimes thrown around a bit too lightly. But you use it in the context, very important in this particular debate, of language shaping reality rather than describing it, don't you? Tell us about your argument there.
1: So this is the postmodern turn generally, is that instead of thinking that there's a real world out there and we're doing our best to describe it with our words... You take almost the opposite position that the words are the reality. And that means that if you change the words, you change reality. And that's why this movement, this uh, gender identity ideology, is so linguistically focused. Like it sometimes seems it's all about the words, it's all about people choosing neo pronouns, like saying, I want you to refer to me as Zizir or they them or something. And counter to that, Those of us who say there is a reality out there, I mean, of course, we accept that words sometimes do make reality. You know, the words that I said when I got married to my husband made an actual fact. I am now married legally to my husband, and that has real-world consequences. So words can change reality. You know, I'm not just saying reality is out there and we just describe it. But to some extent, that's true. Like, male and female are things that are out there, and they're real brute realities. They're like as base as you can get in reality. And if you start saying that male people are female and female people are male, you lose touch with reality entirely. So the linguistic policing is mostly about whether you call people, you know, a woman or a man, male or female, and what pronouns you use for them. And increasingly, there's been a move to making literally no distinction whatsoever between a person who was born male and a person who was born female, both of whom think of themselves as women, like none at all. And this, I really struggled with this in the book. And the Orwellian turn, we could have kind of stopped there, couldn't we? We could have said male and female are real things. Man and women are social roles. I already think that's massively sexist because what are the social roles if they're not actually just what every, you know, what all male people do and what all female people do? But anyway, we could have sort of stopped there logically. It would have been rubbish, but we could have. Instead, these words male and female are now being redefined. And the example that I give in the book is of American law, because America's got a lot further than us on this. And there's a sentence, I think I'm getting it about right, that says something like, um, when a person transitions, they assert the sex that matches their gender identity rather than the sex that they were assigned at birth. Now, nobody's assigned a sex at birth. People are observed a sex at birth. But sex cannot mean both the thing that you are when you're born and the thing that you assert yourself to be. It's one or the other. It can't be both. And this is Orwellian doublethink. I reread 1984 recently. And that notion of doublethink, being able to hold two mutually contradictory ideas in your head at the same time, is absolutely central to the thought control that he describes in that book. And the other very relevant concept from Orwell is newspeak. So newspeak is the language that they're creating, that they've part created during this future dystopia, where they've cleaned out all words that enable you to think things they don't want you to think. Mm -hmm. And you're just left with these very, I mean, a double plus ungood and... Um, wrong think, these very clunky words that mean just one thing. And if that's all you've got available to yourself, then you can't think anything that you're not meant to think. There's a lovely Orwell quote about the destruction of words is a beautiful thing. If we destroy all the words that we need to describe the physical embodied reality of sexual dimorphism then we won't be able to say things like, look, male people are different from female people. Female people need some different things than male people. I wouldn't be able to say the things that I need to say. I wouldn't be able to write the book. And that's what's happening. That's why it's Orwellian.
0: We're coming into land now. I just want to mention one thing that really struck me in the book. There are certain sort of paradoxes going on in this debate. And one of which you mentioned several times is the fact that it's very often radical lesbian and feminist groups who are working with conservative Christian ones, particularly in the US on this issue. You mentioned Gary McCaleb, who works for the ADF, and you say in a parenthesis politically, here and I do not agree on much. You know, I bet that's the case. But it's a weird thing about this debate, isn't it? It's that it's made allies of people who over the last 30 or 40 years or so have actually thought of themselves as the enemy.
1: And that's a really great thing in a way. Um, I talk to Simon Fanshawe sometimes about the founding of Stonewall, and he reminds me that they didn't get what they did by shouting at people and um, making enemies of them and telling them that they were hateful and trying to chase them out of the public square. They ended Section Twenty Eight and, in the end, got gay marriage by reaching out to all sorts of different groups and finding where they had commonalities, which were sometimes very small. That's how they made a broad coalition on a single interest, which was not squeezing gay people out of public life and tormenting them and not letting them get jobs and so on, because Muslim people don't like that either. Catholic people don't like that either. Atheists don't like that either. But also, I think we've become so polarised in the past few decades that we have really demonised people who think and speak differently than ourselves. And this is worse in America than it is here. I mean, what good is it to say this person thinks for sincerely held reasons, for example, that gay marriage shouldn't be allowed? And just to say that person is a bad person who must be squeezed out of the public square and never allowed to say what they think, as opposed to saying, well, you know, I don't agree on that, but we might agree on keeping males out of female sports or making sure that children aren't put on a path to transitioning too young. So I guess that's where I come from. I mean, I really am a pretty hardline atheist, but Gary and I kept the line on after we'd finished the interview for the book and we talked for a long time. I mean, he was someone who fought against gay marriage and I'm someone who has a gay son who I hope one day will give me a very nice son-in-law. And we had a great conversation. He explained to me why he was against gay marriage and it was a better explanation than I've ever heard, even though I'm not against gay marriage. And I hope that I was able to also interest him. And I got an insight of a sort that you rarely get. And we should all do a bit more of that.
0: Well, reading our times often orbits around a central question of what does it mean to be human? So I guess that has to be my parting question to you. What, in your experience, and in particular in this dynamic between ideology and reality and this whole debate, what does this fundamentally say for you about human personhood and identity?
1: I mean, it's such a huge question, and I don't want to say that I'm answering all of it. But the thing that it's highlighted for me is absolutely about embodiment and It's not just that we're in danger of thinking of ourselves as homunculi marching around the place in sort of meat robots. It's worse than that because the meat robot default is male. It's a male adult. And those of us who are female or who are children or who are old or who are disabled are sidelined when we think of ourselves like this. And embodiment is to do with all of those things. Children aren't little adults. Women aren't just smaller, chubbier males. Disabled people have their own needs and they weren't born in the wrong body or any stupid expression like that. And if we don't radically accept our embodiment and understand it as not a constraint on our humanity but as actually central to our humanity, then we are going to leave out nearly everybody and really harm people by not addressing their needs and their humanity.
0: The book is called Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality – Helen Joyce, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Next week, I'll be speaking to Samantha Bose about his book, Secular States, Religious Politics.
1: So it's only if secularism can be reimagined and practically reinvented in a more democratic version can there be real democratisation in Turkey. In India, the choice is between democracy and authoritarianism because for all the faults and flaws of the Indian secular state, secularism has been this notion of equality, of equal citizenship, of no-state religion, of accommodation of diversity.
0: Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison... Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes It'll help other people find the podcast.